fiend to take a bite like Dracula and waste the taste, cause ain't no sugar here. So come here to dinner for the beer. Still, still, This is is hell. Okie doke. Live from late capitalism where the law has become the crime far too often. This is hell. And in the United Kingdom, the government of Prime Minister Boris Johnson is trying to do just that, making law even more so a crime against democracy with a new protest bill that is actually a crackdown on Effectively, any and all protest in Britain. Now, you might think this is in reaction to protests against police violence, and you would be partly correct, except Johnson's Home Secretary was pursuing this crackdown bill way back in early 2020, months before any slaveholder statue was targeted for protest and destruction, maybe thrown into a river. Of course, this isn't the kind of protest uh, crackdown law the military junta of Myanmar is imposing upon its citizenry. Other than both Boris Johnson's proposal and the military junta in Myanmar, both are addressing public assembly, which is defined by both as two or more people gathered together in a public place. As we've discussed here on This Is Hell last week, it's similar to the police crackdown on university campuses in Greece and the crackdown on the political opposition in Turkey that we discussed the previous week. And the bill being pursued in the UK is remarkably like some being proposed here in the United States, including a new bill in Missouri. The problem is many of these anti-protest bills are getting support from liberals who are just as upset at the kinds of disruptive protests they have been seeing in actions against climate change and police violence. Sure, liberals support protesters' cause, but when it comes to endorsing the only successful tactics in protest... Liberals are not on board. In a few minutes, we'll learn all about the proposed crackdown on protest bills in the UK and reconsider what freedom truly is, which is the bigger question here. When we speak with Adrian Kreutz, who wrote the Roar magazine article, What Good is a Right to Toothless Protest? The UK's new police and crime bill is a clear attack on the basic right to protest and a next step in the democratic backsliding of the country. Adrian is a PhD candidate in political theory at New College University of Oxford, working on political realism, Marx, and social epistemology. Adrian is junior dean at New College in Oxford, which turns out to not be new at all, as it was actually founded in 1379. Adrian also teaches at Universität Tübingen. Find out about Adrian at Adrian Kreutz Weebly. Sorry, Adrian Kreutz.weebly.com. Adrian Kreutz.weebly.com. Follow Adrian on Twitter at Adrian underscore Kreutz, K R E U T Z. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show. Well, if it's Monday, it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how have you been? I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. How have you been doing? I'm, I'm doing good. Anything yeah. new by you? No, I mean, I'm just, I'm tired and. I've been trying to catch up on sleep this weekend, otherwise not much, really. Did you get your second vaccine yet? No, I'm about to get my first. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When is that? Tomorrow, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's weird afterwards, man. The first the first one it's yeah. weird afterwards? Oh, okay. It's a little bit weird. It gets much, much worse the second time around. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, I've scheduled it where I think it'll be good. I can, I can have a weird couple of days, so... Good, good, because you need a couple of weird days. Uh, so uh, is it far from your house? You don't have to drive to go get your shot, do you? No, 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 no. It's in, like, Kenwood near, yeah, near. Cool, because yeah. driving afterwards is not a very good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going to get it done? At a Walgreens. Yeah, same thing with my girlfriend. She was at a Walgreens. She said, you stand in line, and you're looking at all this stuff, and you end up buying stuff while you're in line at Walgreens. <laughs> if you are a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, you heard me discuss these challenging times as we wait in line to be vaccinated when we are all forced to balance our hatred for big pharmaceutical companies 
and their commodification of science through intellectual property rights, egged on by Bill Gates, which has caused the slow, unequal, and at times ineffective response to the pandemic. We have to balance all of that with our desire to do what we can to stay alive, not become dead. I wrote that monologue immediately before getting my second dose, that Patreon monologue. And by the time I was reading it on the Patreon podcast this past Friday, I'd started feeling the worst of the side effects from the vaccine. As I was reading the monologue, I started feeling muscle spasms from the injection site in my left tricep, down my arm to my fingertips, and up my arm into my shoulder. And then that pain started moving down from my shoulder into my lower back and hip. And in the midst of a monologue on my distrust for Big Pharma, this studio started spinning. By the time I left, it it was like I had a full-blown flu. This is after the second dose, and at no point during my one-block walk home could I actually lift my feet to walk, shuffling slowly the whole way like I was an octogenarian. It, It kept getting worse all day, fever, chills, muscle spasms, ringing in my ears, seeing stars, loss of appetite when I did have an appetite enough to even take a sip of orange juice, I thought I was going to throw up immediately. I had a raging headache, general fatigue, and there was a lot more, but it was way more gross, so I'll spare you all of that disgusting stuff. However, 48 hours after getting shot up, I felt perfectly fine, and that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people I've been talking to about getting their second dose. So my tip to anyone getting their second dose, be certain to have acetaminophen and ibuprofen on hand because you will need to rotate those two for a good day and a half to deal with the myriad of aches and pains. However, everyone's reaction apparently is different. Some people don't feel anything at all. Also on the most recent Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, we shared an interview from nearly 10 years ago to the day from 2011 with economist Moisha Adler about his book, Economics for the rest of us, debunking the science that makes life dismal. Moisha argues that the so-called science of economics is a scam by the rich to rationalize cruelty through a logic of alleged efficiency, which imposes the lowest wages possible, causing inequality and poverty, all to benefit the extremely wealthy. But you can only hear my pre-vaccination concerns about Big Pharma, why I am less afraid to take illegal drugs than legal ones, and an interview with an economist who admits economics as a science is a con, a scam, by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is what are you doing to boost your social credit score? (laughs) What are you doing to boost your social credit score? Getting inoculated. How about that? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We are completely commercial-free, We're not a not-for-profit, and we don't take any foundation money. All of our support comes from you. So thanks to all of you who went to thisishell.com and made your contribution to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Thanks to David R., Alex H., and Brian R. for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks, David, Alex, and Brian. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following Adrian Kreutz and our conversation on the crackdown bill in England. Again, the question from hell is, what are you doing to boost your social credit score? What are you doing to boost your social credit score? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is blueberries. And what we promise to be the last time we will be citing the Healthline article, the 23 best hangover foods, Blueberries are rich in nutrients that fight inflammation in your body, which comes in handy if you have a hangover. According to the study, anti-inflammatory effect of the blueberry, anthocyanins, malvidin-3 glucoside, and malvidin-3 galactoside, and endothelial cells 
I just put that in there to see if you'd stumble on it. You did a fantastic job. Yeah. There's no way I was going to get through that. Yeah, I've been, I'm reading these before because I know that. <laughs> you got to do pre-reads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another study, effects of alcohol hangover on cytokine production in healthy subjects, found that blood levels of various inflammatory compounds increased after alcohol consumption. Thus, eating blueberries after having too much to drink may help fight related inflammation. This makes this week's hangover cure blueberries. And when you're drunk, what's the first thing you think of? You want to eat a whole bunch of blueberries, right, Jess? <laughs> Doesn't that sound really disgusting? So, like we said, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can DM us via Twitter. I'm trying to reach for something here. We, uh, you can DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can message us through Facebook at facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. And we truly appreciate your guest suggestions and topic ideas, which you may have noticed we are featuring more and more of your suggested guests and topics on the show because the guest suggestions and topic ideas have been fantastic. But it's always kind of special when we get stuff sent to us through the actual mail to This Is Hell 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Now, Devon, I'm sorry, Devon, (laughs) Devon is spelled like Devon in Devon and Cornwall. However, everyone in this area that's generally called Northtown, I guess, calls it Devon and has for generations and I do not know why. So Devon is D-E-V-O-N just like Devon. So we got a letter from Pete which I will read to you but I have no idea why we received it or when we were supposed to receive it and if you can figure out why we received this letter, Jess or anybody, I would truly appreciate it. It's from Waters School Ecology Program It's dated March 28th, 2019, and then 28th, 2019 is X'd out in handwriting, and it says 2021. So it says, Dear Neighbors, by the way, Water School is a good four miles, five miles from here, so I'm really not too sure how much we are neighbors. And this is handwritten address, too. This is hell. C. Mertz. So... Please tell me why we got this letter. Spring is here. Within the next few days, when weather conditions are right, we will be conducting a prescribed burn of the native gardens along the riverbank. Permits have been granted, and persons trained and experienced in safety conducting burns will be on hand. Fire is necessary to maintain our fire-evolved ecosystems. Fire suppresses weeds. It clears thatch buildup and provides opportunities for native seeds to sprout. Fire darkens the soil, warming it in the sunshine, and the resulting ash liberates nutrients for plant use. Healthy prairies store tremendous amounts of CO2 in their extensive root systems. Burning is done when the weather conditions are such as to maximize the success of the burn and minimize any inconvenience. We welcome neighbors and friends to witness this historic process. Persons with medical conditions who would like to be notified by phone, should uh, before we burn as to minimize their exposure should call us and then they give us a phone number signed the waters school ecology program i have no freaking idea why the hell we are getting this letter from two years ago that's been updated for this year about a burn of a school ecology by a school ecology program that's maybe six miles from here? I Do they think that we're really into burning and we just want to watch fire? I, I don't know what why we received that. If anybody has any idea of why we received this letter from the Water School Ecology Program, clue us in. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, more importantly, we also got another piece of printed art from the amazing people at KP Printing in Detroit. Now, they've sent us a few of these uh, six-by-eight-inch cards that are just beautiful artwork that display phrases on them in the past. And if you listen, you have heard me discuss these in the past. We received one, and it wasn't the first one we got, but these are the three most recent ones that we have received. We received one that says, Biden, I'm still trying to get this one out of the envelope, 
because I haven't read it yet. Uh, Biden, the last sexist president. We received that one a few months ago, which I thought was just odd and funny. Then a couple weeks ago, we got this one. Progress brings its own problems, which I think about using as a tagline for the show. Progress brings its own problems. This is hell. And now we got this, the most beautiful one so far, quoting Parliament Funkadelic. Free your mind and your ass will follow. So thanks to the amazing people at Detroit's KP Printing for consistently sending us beautiful artwork. And you can send us your stuff through the mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, D-E-V-O-N, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Coming up, the Boris Johnson government is cracking down on protests. We will have some of your answers to this week's question from Hal, which is, what are you doing to boost your social credit score? What are you doing to boost your social credit score? And we'll tell you, we'll share with you Rotten History, this week's Rotten History, as well as tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is is hell. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has proposed a new law in the wake of protests against police violence that would expand police powers to stop such protests. Yep, the Johnson government's response to protests against police violence is to actually give the violent police more power. And it's not only happening in the UK, it's almost as if there's a global police crackdown on protests against police. Here to help us understand what's happening in the UK and may be happening in your community soon, Adrian Kreutz wrote the Roar magazine article, What Good is a Right to Toothless Protest? Adrian is a PhD candidate in political theory at New College University of Oxford, working on political realism, Marx, and social epistemology. He is junior dean at the New College in Oxford. You can find out more about Adrian at adriankreutz.weebly.com and follow Adrian on Twitter at Adrian underscore Kreutz. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adrian. Hi. Hi, Chuck. Hi. You know, the show. Uh, thank you very Hi. much for being on the show. The uh, You know, I was really fascinated just by the crackdown bill and the protest bill, and we'll definitely talk about that at the beginning. But the larger conversation that this leads to about freedom, I think, is absolutely fascinating. Do you think that we can address climate change? Can we address the pandemic? Can we address police violence without reconsidering what we think is freedom? Well, that's a that's a very good question, actually. Um, I would say that our understanding of freedom is, is usually um, a bit clouded. If we if we uh, depends on where we come from, actually, and think about freedom, and it looks like to me, it looks like always. The narrative of freedom is usually in the background of, of, of many protests and, and, and many um, many forms of activism, um, but their 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 idea of freedom or what 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 their what their what their concept of freedom is they're usually a bit un- unclear and, and usually they're a bit diverted about their concept of freedom. So I would definitely say that um, what we need is is what different forms of protest and different forms of activism need. Um, is is a more robust concept of freedom, which is always always in the in the background, I think, of of, of any kind of emancipatory action or any kind of emancipatory movement. So yeah, I I do think we should reconsider freedom. You start your writing in 1936 London, three years prior to Britain's entry into a war against the fascist leadership in Germany. And you write in what we know today as the Battle of Cable Street, the Metropolitan Police protected Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists against almost 20,000 anti-fascist protesters, including socialist groups, Irish dock workers, British Jewry, and anarchist and trade unionist groups. That day, 3,000 paramilitary black shirts marched through the Jewish neighborhood. Mounted police charged at, charged at a crowd of peaceful counter-protesters and many of the arrested reported violent treatment at the hands of the police. So is it fair to say that the police were supporting the fascists or is it more accurate to say whatever the movement, the police protect against, albeit violently, protest? Is it, is it they are pro-fascist or are police just anti-protest no matter who the other side is? Um. I don't think there's a general answer to that. Um, so in the case that you were just quoting, um, it looks like the police was 
pro-fascist. And uh, if we think of if we think of the responses to to the backlash that came from, say, uh, left activists um, on the backlash on the on the on the right to protest bill, uh, that was recently proposed in the UK, um, we see that there is a proclivity towards um, defending defending fascists or the other side of of, of protests. Um, but I think that's that's an answer that a question that we can only answer in in, in the context. Um, I wouldn't go as far as saying that there is uh, a necessary connection between um, police cracking down protests and and th them taking sides. And you also then move on to today and London in 2021, and you write social movements protesting for racial and environmental justice, disrupt public transport, deface the statues of slave traders, spread banners over Westminster Bridge, and block the entrance to Parliament. In response, the administration of Prime Minister Boris Johnson proposes the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, popularly known as the Crackdown or Protest Bill. It fits the draconian script of recent years, the concentration of power, the limiting of government accountability, and multi-pronged attacks on human rights. So last Thursday, New York Times reports the French parliament passed a contentious security bill that extends police powers despite criticism from political opponents and civil rights activists who have vowed to challenge the le uh, legislation before France's Constitutional Council. The bill broadens the powers of municipal police forces, expands the police's ability to use drones. Prime Minister, or I'm sorry, President Macron's government has argued that the bill provides a necessary boost to embattled police forces and protects them from increasingly violent protesters. I mean, this would suggest that the kind of protest bill is this isn't just limited or unique to London and Britain. We spoke with Giulio Derrico last week about how this is happening in Greece. And Max Zerngast talked to us a couple of weeks ago about how this is happening in Turkey. Do you think that there is right now that these are kind of related? That do you think that there is a, a kind of broader trend throughout Europe to support the police and to be opposed to protest? Uh, I definitely would say that this is uh, um more widespread and this is happening outside the uk as well and it seems to be it seems to be happening under the radar of lockdown measures it seems to be uh is an interest it's interesting here that this happens in, in recent recent times and and it all happens really under the radar of, of of lockdown news um and it seems to be a part of a more general uh backsliding within liberal democracies um and it plays a part and a crucial part i think plays a crucial part in in that, in that more general trend towards uh, authoritarianism, um, a general trend to from going away from um, democratic participation, going away from uh, uh, different forms of, of, or better suited forms of democratic deliberation. So I think it, it fits the script, and, and we definitely see it not just in the UK. We see it, we see it elsewhere as well. Uh, it, re, it reminded me of, of uh, uh, the policies in, the, in, in Hong Kong. It reminds me of Hungary. It reminds me of, of Belarus, which, which, which happened earlier this year. So it seems to be part of a, of a general trend. And you write that the crackdown bill, as you and others are calling it, uh, introduces new grounds on which the police may infringe and interfere or intervene against and effectively shut down protests at whim. The crackdown bill aims to frame political threats to the legitimacy of the government as security threats to public peace, stability and social cohesion. Political threats to the legitimacy of the government as security threats. On January 6th, here in the United States, we had the U.S. Capitol protests that led to protesters occupying the U.S. Capitol, vandalizing and looting. There have now been some 400 arrests of those protesters. In your opinion, were those protests a threat to the legitimacy and our uh, uh, state legitimacy? And are we responding to them as a security threat, which is exactly what critics do not want to see in Boris Johnson's so-called protest bill? Are those two kind of related? So you're asking whether um, so that would yeah it's, it's a different it's, it's a difficult argument to make I think if we look at so the the protest bill seems to be a response to what I would call our emancipatory movements emancipatory forms of activism it seems to be a direct response to uh, extinction rebellion last year it seems to be a direct response to uh, Black Lives Matters demonstrations last year in London. Um, and uh, so I don't think we can make the transfer from, from, from that to what happened at the Capitol uh, in the United States, um, if that's where you're aiming at. 
And I was, that's what I was trying to get at, trying to see, you know, do you have the, you know, because here you are, here's some, you know, I support the protesters in London, very much so. Right. And here we are, we're having protesters here in the United States, and I'm just trying to see how these kinds of protests where we have people are being rounded up, people are being arrested for those protests here in the United States. How are those protests different from the protests that you've seen in London? I think that, that we can go back to to more general question, to more theoretical question of freedom. So if you, I think we must always ask whether the protests in the context, whether the protests that we're seeing, whether from the perspective of the police, the protests that they are trying to crack down on, um, whether that has any emancipatory potential or whether that serves freedom in any sense. And um, I think there is a case to be made, there's an argument to be made that what happened at the Capitol earlier this year wasn't in the, well, wasn't, didn't really support any form of, of freedom or, or more robust uh, or interesting sense of, of freedom. And uh, I think we have to make, in each context and in, in, with respect to every uh, particular protest or, or, or form of social activism, we have to ask whether that serves freedom or not. And well, yeah, I think there's a case we made that. Uh, if, 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 it, if it doesn't serve freedom, there has to be a diff there can be or there has to be a different way of, of dealing with with those protests, even from the perspective of the police. And I think this so, I sorry, I do think we we, we should still uh, make distinctions between protests. And I think we can make a distinction between protests. Maybe we could try and make a distinction between protests um, on the grounds of freedom. And that gets to the other point of, so, you know, the protesters of the U.S. Capitol might say, no, we were marching for freedom, but that's the, some often freedoms can be used to, can be weaponized and can be used to take away the freedoms of others. Your freedoms may infringe on the freedoms of others. Is that the logical leap that isn't being made by the protesters of the U.S. Capitol, that what they see as their own personal freedoms, they don't understand those freedoms undermine the freedoms of others? Right, I, I, I would agree that um, when those protests refer to to concept of freedom, that that, that concept of freedom is, is is deeply flawed, and uh, as you just say, it seems to be a very egocentric um, um, form of freedom, um, and we can totally interrogate whether that's that's a good concept of freedom, whether that's a stable concept of freedom, whether that's a, a concept of freedom that is actually conducive to a free society. Exactly. And we'll get to that in a bit. But I want to, let's get back to the crackdown bill for a second. You write, obviously, these two things are completely intertwined. You write the crackdown bill will also impact in a myriad of unfamiliar ways the life and livelihood of racialized communities, traveler communities, traveling and street artists, people with criminal records and young offenders, especially. So how can the Boris Johnson protest bill be used against the most, most vulnerable? And, and why punish the already vulnerable for protests? that do not necessarily include them. Will middle-class protesters have lives as criminalized as the already vulnerable, whether they protested or not? Um, can, can you repeat your question, Quiza? I think so uh, how, how, can a, how can this protest bill be used against the most vulnerable? I mean, because I don't understand why the most vulnerable would be punished for something they may not be participating in, which is which are these? All right. Protests. So uh, yeah, we might have to add that the the, the the crackdown bill, the proposed crackdown bill, is 300 pages. It doesn't really, it doesn't only concern the right to protest. It concerns all myriad of other things, and what what's in especially crucial and and concerning is how vague the wording is in in that crackdown bill. So. Um, for example, um, if you just refer to the right to protest again, it, it, it says that the right that the protest can be um, um, violently cracked down on by the police if it causes an annoyance. Um, but obviously, it's 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 the term annoyance is, is rather vague. We don't really know what what means what what annoyance means, and and it's not so clear who determines what the what the annoyance is. So you see that the bill, the wording of the bill is quite vague, and that and and um, that can lead to, to all forms of different like sentences and outcomes in, in court cases. For example, it gives the, the, the police uh, uh, the power to determine what counts as annoyance. And um, just to give you give you an example, so a street artist um, or two street artists, because that that's the case when they would form um, a public gathering. If there are more than two people outside, uh, that, that forms a public gathering. So the police could, on the grounds of the of the crackdown bill, they could. Um, 
break up that public gathering and refer to that vague term annoyance and say that, uh, well, those uh, two street musicians, they were annoying and uh, therefore we, we uh, were right, we were right to, to break up that, that street performance. And so just, just because that, that the wording of the bill is so extremely vague and, 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 and terribly um, 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 undefined, um, that can be used in, in all sorts of different ways and can be used in, 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 in uh, uh, very destructive ways against racialized communities, against travelers' communities, against street artists, and especially people with, with, uh, with the criminal records and, and young offenders. Um, so this is all part of, of this larger crackdown bill. And um, when we're referring to the, to the, the protest bill, it's actually just uh, one, one article or one part of that larger crackdown bill that has been proposed by the, by the UK government. And again, it, that definition of public assembly defined in the bill as two or more people gathered together in a public place, including street fairs, pride, parades, street right. performers, uh, anything like that. Now, yes. Myanmar's junta had this kind of law during protests, which led to freedom for Aung San Suu Kyi. Now that that junta has removed her from office, it is again the law in Myanmar. How would you describe the Johnson government, which is considering a proposal to crack down on protests in some ways that are similar to the military junta of Myanmar? Yeah, it just it just shows what the government really is. I think it it's just it's just very revealing. And um, um, yeah, I think it, it 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 I hope it changes um, the 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 public's view of, of of the government a bit if if the public realizes how how terrible that that bill really is, how terrible that proposal really is. Um, so I think by making that connection. Um, to Myanmar, for example, um, I, I hope it can show the public how well what, what is really going on behind the walls of, of Parliament and and Downing Street. Much of this is in reaction to the protests related to Sarah Everard and the horrible murder and kidnapping of her. You write this shameful and disgusting crackdown on the peaceful candlelit vigil for Sarah Everard at Clapham Council Common in March 2021 was a prefiguration of the poignancy of the crackdown bill and the startling new powers granted to the Metropolitan Police. This time the lockdown restrictions served as justification. Next time it will be the protest bill. Will laws meant to address public gatherings during a pandemic, do you think that they're going to become permanent even after the pandemic? Will Brits be living with these lockdown restrictions seemingly forever? So the promise is that uh, all lockdown restrictions will be lifted by the end of June. Um, that's the promise. Um, it, but it looks like if we think of the protest, but again, it's just one way of of um, um, having the well, forms of restriction um, carry on into the future. It's 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 a way of of using this form of emergency government that we currently have, this form of emergency measures such as lockdown measures and um, carrying the, carry them on into the future. So I think that the, the crackdown bill even thought it was um, it was uh, uh, perceived earlier than than, than lockdown it was it was people have been starting to work on this as early as January 2020. So that was long before we had lockdown restrictions in place. But I think lockdown restrictions and and this this form of emergency government that we have at the moment comes in very handy and in, in as a way of making other restrictions that the government might favor make them permanent. So um, it might look like lockdown restrictions might be lifted, but they might lift on in, in forms, in other forms, such as uh, the protest bill, for example. You may or not, may not be surprised to learn this, but the story of Sarah Everard has received a minuscule amount of attention here in the U.S. media relative, relative to what how it's been covered in the UK. Everard was the 33-year-old woman who had gone missing for a week when her body was found. It was determined that she was the victim of a kidnapping and murder by a police officer who has been charged. On March 13th, a little over a month ago, there was a protest related to that killing. What was the focus of that protest? Was it about something larger than Sarah's murder, and how did the police react? Um, so it was supposed to be a vigil. It was supposed to commemorate Sarah, so to commemorate all the other brutalized victims of patriarchy, femicide, misogyny. Um, and I think the organizers were trying to get the paperwork done in order to get this, this virtual go-ahead at Clapham Common, um, but it was denied several times, and so they had to 
uh, finally cancel it. Um, but especially some women still organized themselves, still went to uh, to Clapham Common that night, um, were just trying to well, commemorate, express their express their sympathies and feelings and express their grief and mourning um, at their place. Um, and what happens is that the crowd just get bigger and bigger and bigger and uh, police force increases as well. Um, um, and uh, actually the, the, the same police guard, which uh, the same, um, uh, same police group, which the, the murder of Sarah Everett was, was one of the officers from, um, were then um, trying to, to break up uh, that, that vigil, they were pushing, showing the people around, uh, trampling on the, on the flowers that were left in honor um, for, for Sarah. And uh, well, what they were taking as vindication for that, um, for, for breaking up that, that vigil, was the lockdown restriction. But we could easily imagine um, 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 the vindication for breaking up that, that vigil being uh, the, the protest bill. And you also point out that following the crackdown bill's first hearing on March 9th, thousands of people in Bristol took part in a defiant protest. Chants of whose streets, our streets rang out, along with the now familiar kill, kill, kill the bill. Since March, we have seen several protests across the country, the largest so far being the one in London on April 3rd, where environmentalist, anti-racist, feminist, and other activist groups joined forces to oppose the bill. Further protests and campaigns are scheduled for the weeks ahead. Is the protest bill causing unity among what may have been seen in the past as disparate interest groups? Does opposition to protest cause a much larger united protest movement? Well, I would, I would, I would I hope it does. Um, I think there's reason for optimism, there's reason for hope that when well, I've been to the, the protests in London two weeks ago and actually on Saturday, um, there were trade unionists, anti-racist activists, feminist activists, environmentalist activists, um, sex work rights activists. There was such a there was opposition to uh, uh, that that protest bill, but coming from so many different courses and so many different uh, uh, backgrounds. And I think it's re it's hope for optimism, a, a reason for optimism, and a reason for hope um, to see that what otherwise maybe would have been or would have would have considered themselves separate um, forms of, of activism, separate forms of progressive movements that can unite behind that opposition to um, to that protest bill. And I really hope that that we see more of that in the future. And we really so hope to see that different groups and different um, um, different activist groups will join forces in, in the future, and, and we will see more of that. So a bill to restrict protesting is actually going to unite protesters and may spark those protests to become bigger even. And Saturday it was reported uh, that here in the U.S., Missouri State Senate bills SB 26 and SB 66 aim to expand penalties for protesters obstructing traffic or vandalizing monuments and make it harder to cut police budgets, among other things. But progressive activists say that instead of quelling protests, these bills will only rile up more people. So we know that or we think that these uh, protest bill will lead to unity amongst protest groups. How provocative are these bills? Do they incite protest? Well, I, I think they do. I think they incite protest. That's, that's what they do. I mean, they incite opposition to some, they incite opposition to something that has been taken away from, um, from all those who were already um, um, engaged in, in, in activism, engaged in progressive forms of of politics, um, so it, it does. It does. Yeah, it does um, um, provoke uh, um, protest, as as paradoxical as it might sound. Unites and provokes. That's some provo a protest bill they got there. You write in Bristol, the police used truncheons, long shields, and dogs to clear the streets. Afterwards, it played the media by falsely claiming that officers were injured, meanwhile uh, causing serious injuries to dozens of protesters. And you say that a couple of days later, uh, Avon and Somerset police had to retract their statements about lying about these injuries when their uh, false claims of injuries were revealed. This is a, a taste of the police powers already there. The crack 
crackdown bill will arguably make things even worse. Keeping in mind, the police have a history of releasing false or misleading statements and often get away with it as the media covers many police reports with little to no skepticism, often acting instead of like journalists as stenographers. How will policing be different if the new crackdown bill becomes law? And what have we seen in, for instance, the Sarah Everard um, protests that reveals how they will be acting in the future? Um, I think the most, the, the thing that should concern us, concern us the most is that um, justific- justification or vindication of um, the tactics of the police in, 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 in breaking up protests or whatever they do in, when, they, when they confront the protests. Uh, the most concerning thing is that the justification for whatever they do can be given ex ante, so after, after they've done it, so, so to say. Um, the, the, the wording of the, of the bill is, is vague enough to allow for all sorts of justifications happening after um, action had already been done. So whatever the police does, they will find um, some form of justification for what they have done in that bill, because just the bill is, is, is vague enough to allow for, for all sorts of different justifications. And I think that's one of the most concerned, most disturbing things, things about that bill. And that might easily change um, um, policing in the future, because they don't have to give this justification for what they do in advance. Um, they can just act and react and act very ad hocly. And I mean, human psychology is weird. Um, police does weird things when they're confronted with, with uh, potentially violent protesters or, um, or, or non-violent protesters. Um, so I think that the, the horrible thing is that they don't have to find a justification before they act. They can find a justification after it. Um, they've done whatever, whatever the police has done. Um, I think this. I don't know how it will change um, policing in the future um, in practice, but I can see it having, having, can see it changing um, maybe the, um, uh, the 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 threshold for acting. The police's threshold for acting. I think can see changing changing that. And one of the more disturbing things to me about the bill and uh, in your writing and one of the most fascinating things is liberal support for the protest crackdown bill. You write, according to Home Sec- the Home Secretary, the crackdown bill constitutes a compromise. Instead of classing the likes of Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion, organized crime groups, the proposed bill focuses on tactics of direct action, not just any tactics, though, only those tactics that really work, such as obstructing roads, disrupting public transport and defacing public memorials. Liberals want civil rights, but not the means necessary to secure and maintain them. And so they turn into authoritarians. Protest is fine, but only as long it is, as it is tame and largely ineffective. Why do liberals not recognize that the protests they oppose are the protests that work to benefit causes that they supposedly support? Um. I, I don't know why it is, but it, 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 it seems to be the case um, that it just seems to be the case that liberals take for granted um, the, the basic liberties that we have, and they don't seem to see that those basic liberties were won by direct action, by protests, by emancipatory forces, um, by politics that happened on the street. Um, there seems to be a denial there. Um, or not wanting to see that potentially illiberal forces are what secures a basic liberty, are what secures what liberals um, um, uh, love so much, uh, all their basic liberties, all their basic rights. Um, so there seems to be this, I don't know, this is like a cognitive dissonance between liking those liberties very much, but not liking the ways those liberties came about and taking for granted that they are there, taking for granted that they cannot be taken back. Um, but obviously, if you, if, if you restrict on, on the right to, to protest by restricting on the protester, protesters' free movement, that's a way of infringing basic liberty, the right to free movement of one of the protesters. So there seems to be this dilemma, there seems to be this, this conflict in, in liberal thought or in, in, in liberals' law for, for rights and basic liberties, um, which, is, which is very difficult um, to, to uh, uh, I should put that, uh, very difficult to make coherent sense of from the perspective of, of a liberal.
How is opposition to disruptive protest authoritarian? Because I mean, I've heard this dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my life, and I'm sure you have too. I've heard people who are liberals who support whatever cause, let's say it's an anti-war march in downtown Chicago, and they just say, you know, it's fine except for the traffic jam. Why do I have to wait an hour and a half to get out of the city to go back to the suburbs where I live simply because of this anti-war protest? In fact, it makes me upset about it, the anti-war movement, because they are now disrupting my life. So yeah. how is opposition to disruptive protest authoritarian? Well, I, well, I think it is. It, we can just make, make an example, as I just said, it is authoritarian if it, if it restricts on, on, on basic liberties. So the, if, the, if the protest bill goes through, the police can easily say that a protester might not use public transport. Um, and that to me is, is authoritarian. That to me is an infringement of, of basic liberty. That's, to me, that's the infringement of, of uh, the freedom to, uh, the right of free movement. So in that sense, I think it is authoritarian. I do think it is authoritarian in, in a different sense, um, because I do think that uh, protest is a very effective means of entering uh, public political debate. And uh, by taking away um, the possibility of, of, of entering that sphere of, of public deliberation, political liberation, and, um, through the means of, of protest, taking away uh, the possibility of having one's voice heard um, in, in the public sphere, I think that is deeply authoritarian, um, uh, deeply author authoritarian instrument in, in uh, changing or in, in uh, determining what is the, 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 the public discourse about uh, the current politics. Why is dis uh, disruptive protest, why is that the only protest that seems to work? Does protest have to be an infringement of others' freedoms, for instance, freedom of movement, in order to be effective? Um, I don't think it's necessarily the case that it has to be disruptive, or, well, disruptive to the extent of being the infringement of another's uh, basic liberties, basic rights. But it just looks like it is, well, infringing on, 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 on somebody else's basic rights is a very effective way, just historically speaking, a very effective way of, um, well, getting, getting one's voice heard. Um, there might be other ways, but it is a very effective, effective way of, of, of entering uh, like public discourse. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just I find this whole take uh, when the liberals from the liberal perspective really, really fascinating. You write that liberal democracies are thus constantly faced with the question of what is more important, a potentially disruptive but democracy securing right to protest or the safeguarding a catalog of basic liberties at the cost of democracy backsliding. The crackdown bill sets the UK on a path toward the latter. Is this debate over disruptive protest a debate over whether the priority should be democratic values or business interests. Are liberals opposed to protests that's effective because it's not good for business? One could definitely make the case. I think I, I totally agree. Um, and there seems to be this dilemma in, 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 in liberal thought all the time that um, if, it's, if it is the case that we cannot have um, effective protests and we, we, we cannot change the status quo without violating um, any of the, the rights and liberties that, that liberals take for granted, um, then, well, w w liberal thought is in this dilemma that they either have to, uh, either have to, well, just allow that, that form of democratic backsliding or they have to re reveal themselves as, as those people um, who say that uh, the right to protest has no priority and uh, therefore other rights have priority. And uh, if we think of, uh, well, the right, to, uh, uh, um, um, the right to property, for example, that seems to be a straightforward connection with protecting, protecting business, protecting, uh, protecting the economy, whatever it is that, that they're trying to protect. So are liberals opposed to disrupting capitalism? And if so, can you support causes like fighting climate change and ending police violence and be opposed to disrupting capitalism? Well, I, I, would, I would say no. You, you, can't, you can't be, no. Um, 
liberals, from a liberal perspective, they would say that's totally fine. Um, the, the liberals seem to, to live with this cognitive dissonance that they think it's, it's fine, we can square those two things. Um, I would say no. And you also write that some claim that the right to protest has its foundation in the interest in freedom. Freedom, however, is notoriously hard to define. Marx arguably had a multifaceted concept of freedom in mind, where freedom refers to the absence of domination together with the chance to positively enact one's own will. But that alone is not sufficient for society to manifest freedom. There is a communal element to freedom, say Marx and Engels, in the German ideology. Freedom is the right and capacity to, of people to determine their own actions and be free from domination, and that's possible only in a community which is able to provide for the full development of human potentiality. Is that what liberalism opposes most, a communal action to oppose domination? Do they approve of any individual acting to oppose domination? But liberalism is opposed to communal action doing the same. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a good way to phrase it. That's a good way to put it. Um, that, that, that seems to be the case, even if that's not typically the argument that they would make. Um, so within the notion of, of a basic liberty or, or basic right, it, we just have it that is, the, from the liberalist perspective, it is tailored towards the individual. So um, it is a morality or, or political morality that is made for the individual, not for, for uh, the community. So in, in that sense, the whole framework is the framework which they were using um, is, is biased towards uh, the individual. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is um, a rejection or opposed to the idea of community, but it's probably just easier to, to think about the individual first from that liberal perspective. And if we would just take um, a very robust and complex concept of freedom, such as Marx and Engels' concepts of freedom, where the idea of community is somehow in, built into the concept of freedom, um, that from that perspective, um, every every um, um, every rise to to freedom from from liberal would be wanting would, would not be enough because it is stuck in this in this individualist um, context and in this individualist framework. The idea is that we would all have some sort of political recourse if we have some grievance that we want to have addressed, and the protest is part of that process of that recourse. You write the crackdown bill is there to prevent us from prefiguring those alternatives by preventing us from effectively voicing our concerns. Protest is a direct intervention into the polis, the realm of public political deliberation, the public political discourse by those who are ordinarily denied access through pre-established channels. What happens to a political system when protesters are cut off from all the pre-established channels of political discourse? What happens when protesters have no recourse to address their grievances? Well, I think that's just when 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 um, the polity turns authoritarian. This is just totalitarian. I think that's just that's the final outcome of um, that could be the final outcome of the protest bill if you're no longer allowed to voice your political opinion and if you cannot even force yourself you cannot even force your political opinion on others by means of, of protest or direct action I think well that deprives you of any kind of access to uh, a political life any kind of um, access to political deliberation processes which will then only happen um, happen in Parliament behind closed doors um, and then we're truly at, at the point where at best, you're allowed to vo vote, and at best, that's part of your uh, democratic um, political life. Um, but we can totally debate, certainly debate whether um, that's that's uh, a good concept of, of democracy still, or whether that undermines um, democracy already. Whether um, just turning up to vote and that's pretty much enough, as we see it in Russia, for example, whether that's democratic or whether um, um, what we think. The democracy is is actually more than um, just voting and actually uh, having having the opportunity to to voice one's political opinion and force one's political opinion on others uh, if necessary. Just a couple more questions for you, Adrian. Uh, you write that protest is at its heart a genuinely political act. Obstructing streets and destroying statues is one of the most effective ways 
of accessing the realm of public political deliberation. How is the destruction of a statue exercising democracy? Um, yeah, that's a controversial take. Um, I wouldn't actually say that is the best way to practice democracy. Um, toppling statues, removing statues is probably not the best way to address uh, post-colonial legacy. To, to, it's probably not the best way to educate um, future generations about the colonial past, because that is what it is supposed to be. It is supposed to be an anti-colonial protest if you're removing one of the statues. I think there are better ways to, to do that than what putting, putting them in a museum or um, having different plaques explaining the, the colonial um, history of, the, of that statue. But it just seems to be that just just judging from the media attention that uh, the removal or the uh, toppling that statue in, in Bristol that, that got a lot of media attention in, in the UK when they were throwing it into the harbour. It's just, it, that's just testament of, 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 of the fact that it can be, that it can be a way of, of, of just at least putting attention on something. It can be, there can be effective way of protest just by the fact that all of a sudden we have uh, discussions about uh, the colonial past of the UK entering the wider, um, wider discourse, entering debates in families, discussions at the family table, entering universities, schools and, and, and everywhere else. So I'm not saying it is the most effective, I'm not saying it's the most democratic or the, the best way to, to, to address something or to, to make um, progressive um, activism and progressive politics on the streets, but it seems to be a way. It seems to be a way to um, to enter uh, the public discourse. Your writing made me, it just caused me to have so many different thoughts, like uh, how liberalism is prioritizing of the law over democracy, how prioritizing the law over democracy is authoritarian and authoritarianism, and how you can see that within liberalism. I just, it, this is just really, really amazing writing. Like, one of the things I was thinking about was how can you stop someone from using their freedoms to limit the freedoms of others? How can you stop the freedom to dominate others? Um, good question. I don't think it can be done in in in, in the in the framework that we well in the liberal framework. There, there seems to be this this conflict or this dilemma seems to be in built into the into the framework. Um, and I don't have a ready-made answer for that. I think I would keep it with Marx that we shouldn't have um, recipes for the cookshop of the future, because um, what you are describing uh, a place where exercising one's own rights will never um, infringe upon the rights of somebody else. That seems to be that utopian place that that uh, that, that some of us are dreaming about, but it's, it's really hard to say how this can be uh, uh, manifested and how we, we can bring this bring this about. So I, I don't really know how to answer that question, but I would love I would I actually would love to know how to answer that question, but I don't have a ready-made answer for that. So our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. That was going to be our question from hell, but I got a worse one for you, Adrian. We've been speaking with Adrian Kreutz, who wrote the Roar magazine article, What Good is a Right to Toothless Protest? You can find out more about Adrian at adriankreutz.weebly.com and follow Adrian on Twitter at Adrian underscore Kreutz. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Adrian, is neoliberalism being threatened globally and the police are being sent out to enforce neoliberalism? Are we right now seeing a threat to neoliberalism and the reaction by neoliberalism is a police state? Yes, I think I think that's the case. Globally, globally, you think this is happening now? In the West, I would say. Well, yeah. Um, um, if we don't, if we're not careful, I think that could be the case. I mean, that's, it sounds dystopic, and I think that's where you are pushing me towards answering that question from hell and giving this very dystopic answer to that. It sounds dystopic, but I think if we're not careful... Um, and if we if we don't exercise our right to, to protest, and well, in that case, uh, exercise our pos opposition to to that uh, police protest bill, I think that's a possible future, um, um, a future that could be on the horizon, and we just I think we have to be careful that it, it, it doesn't become reality. 
Adrian, this really is fascinating work. The thing I like the most about it is it is about something that is happening right now, a current event with this protest crackdown bill, but and then it reveals these larger issues, and that's what we always like to discuss here on the show. So thank you so much for being on. Adrian Kreutz wrote the Roar Magazine article, What Good is a Right to Toothless Protest? Follow him on Twitter at Adrian underscore Kreutz and see all of his work at adriankreutz.weebly.com. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. Thanks. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is hell. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you doing to boost your social credit score? (laughs) Krimsky Crackers, um, responding to Alex's Goofus and Gallant picture. Oh, good Lord, really? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, Krimsky, Krimsky Crackers says... Goofus dies in a bar fight in Vietnam. Gallant becomes a federal agent and helps in the assassination of Fred Hampton. Crackers gets a minus credit score. (laughs) Um, Pete V, masturbating in the park. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to boost your social credit score? (laughs) He must be really good at masturbating. Um, Nick E, I'm packing up and finally moving out of Xinjiang. Dan K, eating people with higher scores. <laughs> Chris H, annihilating the bourgeoisie. Um, what are you doing to boost your social credit score? Adam A, owing to the school of J. Paul Getty, I plan on amassing enough debt to make the banks bend over and kiss my butt. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Angela M, staying home. And, and last, Kramer O, responding to social media prompts. <laughs> The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff that's currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, Gory this week in Rotten History. In Rotten History, April 20th, 1849, 170 years ago, Tuesday, in the English port city of Bristol, a 17-year-old girl named Sarah Harriet Thomas was executed by hanging. And you'd think that Rotten History would stop there, but that's not how Rotten History happens. Formerly employed as a household servant, Sarah had testified in court that her employer, an elderly single woman named Elizabeth Jeffries, had mistreated her in numerous ways, including sometimes locking her in the kitchen all night. Driven by growing hatred, Sarah had finally snuck up on Jeffries while she was sleeping and pounded her on the head with a big rock until she was dead. She had then killed the woman's dog, taken some of her jewelry, and fled the house. Really? Killed the dog? Gotta wonder what it was about the dog that she hated so much. Anyway, police arrested, or what? hmm, I'm starting to think Jeffries, Elizabeth Jeffries did something with that dog to Sarah. I I don't like my imagination. Police arrested Sarah the next day at the home of her mother. When Sarah heard the death penalty read out in a crowded courtroom, Sarah collapsed. And over the next 17 days, she provided a detailed confession, repeatedly expressed remorse. Meanwhile, a growing crowd of petitioners asked the court for clemency on account of her youth. Remember, she was only 17. But on April 20th, before a crowd in front of the Bristol jailhouse, Sarah was led to the gallows, kicking and screaming. As the executioners struggled to get the noose around her neck, she cried, I won't be hanged. Take me home. Moments later, the trap door opened. Sarah's body dropped, then went into the usual involuntary jerking spasms before going limp. A reporter who witnessed the event noted that most people in the crowd seemed entertained and that they quickly went off to hit the nearby taverns because these were the good old days when people were moral and ethical and religious with a firm belief in God and a real joy for watching people being murdered. But a significant minority of the crowd seemed deeply disturbed by what they'd just seen. The director of the prison fainted, and even William Calcraft, the most experienced hangman in England, who had traveled more than a hundred miles from London to carry out the execution, even he seemed shaken. It's as if the killing of a 17-year-old suddenly made the public realize that public executions and executing people generally was possibly, maybe, probably wrong, immoral, unethical. Calcraft, the executioner, called Sarah, quote, in my opinion, one of the prettiest and most intellectual girls I have ever met with, unquote. 
She was the last person to be hanged at the Bristol jail and the last teenage girl ever to be hanged in Britain. So after centuries of killing ugly, dumb men, you execute one smart, pretty girl and all of a sudden your world's turned upside down? Apparently back in the good old days, humanity was not only brutal, but pretty shallow too. In Rotten History, April 24th, 1837, 184 years ago, Saturday, in the city of Surat on the western coast of India, a fire that started in a private home grew too big for the homeowner to put it out using water from the well on his property. Apparently, he was not well liked by his neighbors, but he, he did like his well. According to one account, he went to ask neighbors for help, but they refused him access to their well water. As a result, the fire at his house quickly spread through the well-to-do neighborhood, whose narrow streets were lined with handsomely built wooden houses that caught fire easily in the heat of the dry season, so rich people won't help each other during a crisis, which leads to their own collective destruction. Got it. Makes sense. By evening, much of the city was ablaze. The conflagration continued all night, with flames that could be seen from 30 miles away. Fire seemed to die down, but the next morning, by the next morning, April 25th. But then a hot, dry breeze came in from the southwest and the flames revived, burning higher than before, all because rich neighbors didn't like a guy on the block, so they refused to help him put out the fire when it started. God, rich people suck. That afternoon, the fire was at its worst, reaching parts of the city previously untouched and again burning well into the night. When the sun rose on the third day, most of the city of Surat was a smoking ruin. More than 500 people were dead and almost a 1,000 houses destroyed. In the months that followed, most of the city's prominent merchants left town for good, heading south to Bombay, now known as Mumbai, so the rich who wouldn't help their neighbor had the money to up and leave. That sounds about right, leaving all the poor people to their misery behind without helping in any way. Yep. Meanwhile, the remaining residents in Surat struggled to rebuild their city, only to be hit by a devastating flood the following August that caused even more devastation and killed at least another 18 people. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell Jess. Please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we'll be talking to writer Seamus McGraw on his new book, From a Taller Tower, The Rise of the American Mass Shooter. So sweet. We're going from uh, police protest crackdown to mass shootings. It's only happy, happy, happy news here on This Is Hell. And Wednesday, Wednesday show, we don't know yet? We don't know Wednesday or Thursday. I'm sure it'll be miserable, though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So for all of your miserable news that you want to hear, please tune in to This Is Hell. And, of course, Jeff Dorchin will be back with a moment of truth on Thursday. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to our guest, Adrian Kreutz. Thanks to Jess Lipka for producing. Thanks to Alex Alexander Jerry for producing our uh, for booking today's guest. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Remember, this week's hangover cure is blueberries. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>